Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Economist. Hello, I'm Edward McBride, the finance editor. This week on Money Talks, does one person's desire for affordable housing trump someone else's right to buy a holiday home? Sumer Keynes will join us later to talk about feuds between locals and holidaymakers over housing. The problem comes in the off-season bits when ultimately the locals grumble that they're left with this ghost town. But first we turn to Greece. This week, Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras and his coalition government voted in favour of tax increases and pension cuts to satisfy the demands of Greece's creditors. Even before the vote in Parliament, demonstrators in Athens voiced their anger over the reforms, which come on top of years of austerity and declining living standards. There is a lot of uh, public unrest, social unrest, because the measures that he has put through uh, rely very much on uh, tax increases, uh, very little on uh, spending cuts except the pensions. That's Miranda Zafa of the Centre for International Governance Innovation, a think tank. What remains to be done is that uh, Mr Tsipras has to pass through Parliament the remaining parts of the legislation. That includes lots more unpopular measures, but Ms Zafa says the passage of the austerity bill this week shows that Mr Tsipras's coalition is strong. I think the odds that these pieces of legislation will pass are very high indeed, because the most difficult pieces of legislation have passed already last weekend. Eurozone finance ministers also agreed on Monday to try to finalise the conditions for releasing the next slice of Greece's bailout by May 24th. Sasha Nauta, our finance correspondent, joins me now to discuss the latest chapter in the Greek debt saga. So, Sasha, the, the statement from the European finance ministers that, that seems to be sort of the outline of, of a possible deal, uh, it's like all the past episodes of, of Brinkmanship with Greece, isn't it? It's, it's just really kicking uh, the difficult questions down the road. It is indeed. But the crucial thing here is that they've at least managed to it sounds like they've managed to get one step closer to a deal by, on the one hand, getting, crucially, the Germans to agree that we can at least talk about some form of debt relief, which so far was sort of off the table and something very important for the Greeks. And on the other hand, for the Greeks to start making the first steps to actual implementation of austerity measures. So the Greek parliament has taken the first step by passing through some difficult pension and tax reforms. They'll still need to implement, of course, but that's a very positive signal from their side. On the other hand, the Europeans have signaled that they are at least willing to talk about debt relief, which was very important to both the Greeks and the IMF creditors uh, who are worried about debt sustainability. So it's a positive statement, which is what everybody needs at this stage. But in terms of actually having a constructive solution, I don't think that's what this is. It's, it's a fudge. Right. And so there's, there's still plenty of scope for, for this to go wrong in the next few months, right? Absolutely. The first thing that's been agreed is the basic package of 5.4 billion in, in um, austerity measures in Greece. That's been agreed now, which is, which is wonderful news. Um, but the second thing that still needs to be agreed is this contingency package of what if 
the Greeks don't meet their budget targets in 2018. So this contingency package is still being discussed, needs to be agreed by the next Eurogroup uh, meeting on the 24th. And the third thing, crucially, is debt relief. And again, if that isn't agreed, that could still throw things. And the final thing is the European parliaments, or at least some of the European parliaments, uh, will still need to pass this through their through their national uh, parliament. So most importantly, the Germans, of course, before Greece actually gets its uh, gets its next tranche. And so, what's the real deadline for Greece getting its hands on that money? Um, well, let's count back. So July twentieth is sort of D Day because that's when a very big bond matures. And if Greece currently Greece can't pay for that bond, so if things stay as they are, they will default. On July 20th. Counting back, therefore, they, they need to, at the absolute latest, need to reach a deal, you know, finger in the air, early July, because after that, it still needs to go to these, these parliaments in Europe. Early July uh, sounds far away. However, in June, counting back again, uh, we have the whole Brexit referendum. So there's, a, there's an agreement in Brussels that Greece is off the table in June, which suddenly puts an awful lot of pressure on May, where we are now, to come to a, a final agreement, because after that, all bets will be off for at least a month. But so un- underlying all this back and forth, that there's a fundamental disagreement among the creditors, isn't there, in the sense that the IMF really thinks that Greece will struggle to pay its debts in the long run, and that there needs to be some way found for the debts to be reduced. But European creditors just really don't like the idea of that. They want Greece to run a really big primary uh, budget surplus, 3.5% of GDP. They don't want to cut at least the nominal amount of debt. The IMF and and the European creditors sort of have to agree something among themselves before the the 20th of July, don't they? They do, absolutely. And getting debt relief on the table is a precondition to keeping the IMF in the programme, which is what the Germans want. As ever, I think a fudge is probably going to be possible. We never quite know which shape, but I would guess it's going to be something along the lines of not actually reducing the size of the debt, but just kicking the can down the road by extending the maturity or, or something like that uh, without, so, that, so that the Germans can still say, you know, the Greeks are still paying their debt, but still giving the IMF something on relief. So how about the Greek economy? How is it doing through all of this? And and, and what bearing does that have on the question of Greece's debt? So Greece has sadly dropped back into a, a recession. Whether there's a deal or not, uh, that that issue remains on the table. Of course, a deal would be better than no deal. Um, but it continues to struggle with an awful lot of things that constrain its growth. It's not really reforming its labor market. It hasn't made itself more attractive to outside investors. Um, and unemployment stays very, very high. And this package, whilst $5.4 billion is a big number, is mostly going to be met through taxes, which again raises questions about what that's really going to help uh, with growth. And without growth, it's going to be very hard for Greece to pay its way. So this conversation about paying off its debts, etc., is going to come back again and again, so long as there's no growth, just as things like non-performing loans for banks will continue to drag down banks so long as there is no growth. So the underlying issue of growth, sadly, hasn't gone away. So it sounds like Europe just can't get away from the the endless Greek question. Uh, Sasha, thank you very much. Thank you. Don't forget, if you have any thoughts about the Greek debt crisis and whether that all-important deal will be struck or not, you can tweet us at Economist Radio or find us on Facebook. Next, we look at second homes and their detractors. Sumaya Keynes, our economics correspondent, is here to discuss why some local governments are taking a stand against the holiday home. So, Sumaya, why have second homes become so unpopular in some towns? 
So second homes are quite uncommon overall nationally. Even in the Nordic countries, it's only about kind of 1% of homes are second homes. But the problem comes when they're very geographically concentrated. So, for example, in St Ives, which is a British seaside town, around a quarter of the homes are second homes. Um, and this is all very nice in holiday season when everything's, you know, bustling. But the problem comes in the off-season bits when ultimately the locals grumble that they're left with this ghost town. And they also worry that because of all this demand from outside, is house prices get pushed up and locals can't afford to live in those places anymore. So I was talking to the local mayor and she was saying that the lifeboat crew can't afford to live uh, where they work. Um, and so the idea is that this is a negative force and it's ultimately leading to the communities crumbling. But the communities aren't taking this sitting down, right? I mean, St Ives, for example, has, has decided to, to fight back. Tell us about that. So last week, uh, on May 5th, in its first ever referendum, uh, the residents of St Ives voted to ban newly built homes from being used for second homes. So they want this new, I think, 30,000 homes that are coming on tap to only be used for primary residencies. Is that even enforceable? I mean, it strikes me it's quite tricky to know who is a local who can be legitimately sold to and whether they're staying in the house enough and, you know, can they just sell it on and, and so on? I mean, how, how, how would this even work? There are certainly questions about enforcement. It's not entirely clear how they're going to implement it. But, you know, one idea is that they only let you own it if you're on the electoral roll there. Of course, you might just decide to register on the electoral roll in your holiday home in St Ives, but that would be against the spirit of the law. But there, there are definitely questions of, of how easy this is to enforce. And, and certainly, you know, this holiday town is so attractive that you might think that people would do all sorts of things to get around the rules. But St Ives isn't the only place to have tried this, right? In other countries, there have been similar measures aimed at sort of reducing the number of, of second homes. Yeah. So in Switzerland, in 2012, 50.6% of voters voted for a similar thing. So they voted to ban construction of second homes in kind of tourist hotspots where there are already lots of second homes. There, that was motivated by a slightly different concern. There, I think that... You know, the real motivation there might have been a certain nimbyism, so this idea of, you know, not in my backyard. So actually, there it wasn't the locals voting for these new restrictions. Actually, it was the residents of Basel and Geneva and Zurich who were saying, no, I don't want my nice holiday home to be spoilt by, you know, sprawl other others building there. So basically, residents of the big city saying, we want to keep the beautiful chocolate box bits of Switzerland chocolate boxy. Exactly. And, and, you know, this might be a problem for the locals, right? Because if you restrict house building, then that means less demand, potentially fewer jobs, and that could even hurt the locals. There isn't much evidence on this topic in general, but there's one study that looks specifically at that reform that's coming out by uh, someone at the LSE called Christian Hilbert. And, and he finds that after the reform, the prices of these newly restricted Houses fell by around 12%, which is quite a dramatic fall. At least in St Ives, that's what they want, right? I mean, they're hoping that the restriction will make houses more affordable for ordinary people. But presumably there are downsides as well. Essentially, it's very difficult to win from this policy. Either you dampen house prices, you depress demand and hurt growth in the economy... Or what you do is you essentially increase the incentives for people who already have houses that can be converted to essentially cash in and then move out. So, you know, this could actually have the opposite effect of the one that the policymakers intend. It could lead to an increase in this ghost town phenomenon because it becomes so attractive for the locals to sell up. So what's the alternative? 
So I think the much more sensible solution would be to just tax second homes if you think that really is a problem. Um, And that is actually what governments have been doing. So in Israel and France, uh, in the Netherlands, um, even in Britain, they've been increasing taxes on second homes. In Britain, this has taken the form of extra stamp duty on second home purchases. And from 2017, councils will actually be able to impose a higher rate of council tax on second homes. So this has two advantages. One, it transfers money from the rich to the poor, so is progressive, um, whereas simply banning second home building runs the risk of kind of boosting prices and benefiting people who are already quite rich. And the second advantage of taxing is that it's just much less distortive. When you ban things, you're you're trying to kind of tweak bits of demand at the margin and the chances that you'll have unintended consequences are just really high. With taxes, I think you just have a much more effective instrument to achieve what you're trying to achieve. So yet another reason to love taxes. Sumaya Keynes, thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read our upcoming story about second homes, pick up the latest edition of The Economist or visit us online at economist.com. I'm Edward McBride. Join us again next time. Goodbye. <laughs>